Welcome to the Benefits Executive Roundtable, hosted by Dorothy Koshu, President of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Dorothy is a nationally recognized benefits and compliance consultant and group health broker. Here, you'll listen to industry experts break down the latest news and trends in employee benefits, healthcare reform, regulations and compliance, all designed to empower executive decisions. Welcome, everyone, once again to Season 4 of the Benefits Executive Roundtable Podcast. We have with us once again Marilyn Monahan of Monahan Law Office, and today we're going to be continuing our discussion on federal and state legislative and regulatory updates, Part 2. Welcome, Marilyn. It's a pleasure to be back with you today. Great. I'm so happy that we're doing this, and last week was great. Thank you for being here. There was so much important information that was shared, and I'm really looking forward to continuing this in Part 2. Well, last week, we began discussing the transparency and coverage rule, the CAA, including the No Surprises Act and more. And today, we're going to be continuing these federal and state regulatory updates. We'll be talking about some recent Supreme Court cases that impact employer health benefit programs. And I'm talking about, of course, the Dobbs versus Jackson's Women Health Organization, which overturned the longstanding Roe versus Wade abortion rights case, uh, as well as uh, Marietta versus DeVita and the Medicare secondary payer rules. And this was a huge win for the self-insurance industry. Uh, and for, in my opinion, ERISA overall, Marilyn may not agree with me on that. But uh, uh, we're going to be talking about all these things. And we're going to also be discussing briefly ACA updates. And if we have time, we'll talk about some other important legislative and regulatory matters, including some important California state updates as time permits. So Marilyn, are you ready to get back into it? I definitely am. Great. Okay, so let's dig into some of the hottest topics of the day. First, the Dobbs case, which basically everyone has heard about over the last few weeks, and that is the case that overturned the federal right to an abortion under Roe versus Wade. It's very controversial. It's very emotional to some people. Uh, can we just kind of summarize a bit of the history that led to the Dobbs case? Um, there were three key cases regarding federal reproductive rights. Is that correct? I believe they were Griswold versus Connecticut way back in 1965, Roe versus Wade, the big one in 1973, and Casey versus Planned Parenthood in 1992. Why were these prior cases important in understanding the decision in this summer's Dobbs case? Griswold versus Connecticut is a case that arose out of the state of Connecticut because that state at that time had a law which prohibited doctors from prescribing contraceptives to their patients. This was challenged in court, and it went up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said such limitations are not um, consistent with uh, the federal Constitution, and they recognized in that decision a right to privacy. That right to privacy later formed the basis of the Roe versus Wade decision, um, allowing women to undergo abortions um, up to the point where the fetus was viable. Casey versus Planned Parenthood came along in 1992 and reworked some of the analysis in Roe versus Wade, but confirmed that women have a right under federal law, under the U.S. Constitution, to an abortion um, up to the point of viability of the fetus. Yeah, and that's an important thing for you to state, uh, and I want people to understand that. What this did was make it part of our Constitution, and that's one of the things that happened with the, the Dobbs case. So let's take a look at the current legal environment with the Dobbs case. What exactly was the decision made, and what did it do in a nutshell? In a nutshell, the Dobbs case overturned Roe versus Wade and 
Casey versus Planned Parenthood and returned the issue of whether or not a woman has a right to abortion to the states. So rather than creating a federal standard, a federal right to abortion, it is now up to each state to determine whether or not the women in that state are entitled to get an abortion and under what circumstances. Thank you for that explanation. Uh, so let's look at some of the state activity because obviously this is very important. Uh, California is one of, I believe, 24 or 25 states plus the District of Columbia that allows abortions. But abortions are banned in, I think, something like nine states. And some states have temporarily blocked the abortion ban. Can you comment on why the state activity is so important as it relates to the Dobbs case? Well, I don't have the specific numbers on which states allow abortion and which do not. California does, and there are a number of states which do. And this is a topic that's, as you've indicated by your question, in flux right now, because states are determining um, uh, how they are going to approach this issue. Some states had laws already on the books that were never removed after Roe versus Wade passed, and those are now going into effect again, and other states are passing new laws to place uh, restrictions on abortion. So because Dobbs returned the decision to the states, each state is making its own decision as to whether or not abortion will be allowed and under what circumstances. Will it only be allowed to protect the life of the mother? Will it only be allowed to protect um, uh the life and mental health of the mother? Will it be allowed in cases of rape or incest? So they are now, uh, the various states are now grappling with that issue. And ultimately that will affect um, health plans for those employers with employees in those particular states where the status of abortion coverage is in flux. Yeah, and, and it is a very complicated uh, situation, the state by state. And I just actually just finished drafting uh, an article, which will be uh, published here before too long, probably but by the time this uh, podcast hits, it will have been published by that time. But um, in, the, in that article, I actually uh, referred to a recent study by the Kaiser Family Foundation. And it's funny because from the time I started writing the article to the time I finished the first draft, the they had an interactive map that they had published and they had actually updated that from the beginning to the end of, of my first draft alone. Uh, but basically, they, they list out the states and it's constantly changing now, of course, um, as to what state has what's in place. So that's a good public resource that you can go to if you want to see where the uh, state activity is. And what I'm going to do is post that link to that uh, Kaiser Family Foundation um, interactive map on the show notes for this podcast, just in case anybody wants to see that. They also produced a second map, um, which talks about the state policies on abortion. So if you're interested in more information on this on a state-by-state basis, thank you to the Kaiser Family Foundation for providing that to the public. And uh, again, I, I will post those links uh, on our show notes for this podcast. Uh, so let's take a look at Texas, which is probably the most restrictive state that that's uh, taking a lot of action right now. Um, a lot of, obviously, a lot of emotions going on in and around that state. They're threatening to limit companies from doing business in their state based on whether they cover or support or permit access to abortions and so forth. What kind of implications could that have? I mean, could an Uber driver be sued or attempted to sue for aiding and abetting? Could they sue for telling someone how they might go around the state law in Texas? Uh, for example, can that driver be at risk for driving someone eight miles away to another state to get an abortion? I mean, 
how deep does this go and how much fear should there be uh, in those types of states that are very restrictive? Well, those are some of the uh, issues that are of the most concern. Various states, such as Texas, um, have potential penalties that they've imposed. Some of the penalties uh, for um, assisting with an abortion are civil. That's how the Texas situation is structured. Um, but there could also be criminal penalties. So if you outlaw an abortion in, in total, uh, or if you uh, allow abortion only in certain uh, circumstances and someone receives an abortion arguably outside of those circumstances, could there then be criminal penalties involved? And then that raises the issue that you have talked about, and that is aiding and abetting. So if the Uber driver drives you to the facility where you get the abortion or out of state, um, or it also is coming up in the health plan context. If your health plan is willing to um, cover the cost of transportation to take a resident of Texas outside of Texas to another state where abortion is permitted, could that subject the health plan to aiding and abetting liability either under um, civil or criminal statutes? Um, and that's one of the open issues that we have. Um, how far will these laws go? How will they be applied? And who might be impacted by them? Is it the Uber driver? Is it the health plan? Is it the helpline that advises someone where they can go um, to get an abortion that might not be allowed in the state in which they're living? These are all open questions at this point in time. People are looking at them. They're analyzing them. They're trying to figure out where they think the law should be, um, but we don't have definitive answers with regard to a number of these questions yet. Well, thank you. I know this is very, very confusing. And they're going to be looking for a lot more answers as time goes on, for sure. Let's continue with this for just a moment. Can you talk briefly about the potential for criminal liability? I know you talked about it uh, just a second ago, but uh, do you want to share some more information potentially on that? Well, and I'm not a criminal lawyer, but I do um, understand that that is one of the areas where, for example, doctors are worried about. So um, if they have um, a woman who presents... Um, and has requested an abortion, um, can they provide that abortion under the terms of state law um, or will they be potentially uh, risking a criminal charge? The issue of criminal liability has also come up in the discussions with regard to health plan coverage issues. So if, for example, a health plan covers travel costs and a patient wants to use that travel cost to um, travel from the state in which she lives where abortion is outlawed to a state in which abortion is not outlawed, could that health plan be held liable under an aiding and abetting theory for potential criminal liability or civil penalties, as I talked about a few minutes ago? And we don't really have an answer to that question. If the travel costs, in my example, are part of your ERISA plan, an argument could be made that ERISA preempts any civil or criminal penalties that might apply under state law. That is one of the arguments that's been presented, but as far as I know, it hasn't been um, explicitly tested yet. Um, and so it's kind of an open issue as we sit here today. And so it's a decision that plans will have to make in consultation with their legal counsel as to uh, what, how far they want to go and what they think they are allowed to do um, under existing law. 
Well, thank you. I want to talk about a couple of things that you just mentioned and, and kind of dig into them a little bit deeper. Let's talk about the popularity and the current discussions of restrictions on travel benefits related to abortions, as you just alluded to just a moment ago. Travel can be a valid medical expense, correct? I believe it's Section 213D of the IRS Code. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay. What kind of, boy, I'm good. <laughs> Relying on memory there. Okay. What kind of plan design issues can come up for an employer thinking about adding or modifying travel benefits for abortion services in another state? One of the first things to consider is if you are adding travel benefits to your plan to make certain that the travel benefits are structured to comply with any limitations contained in Section 213D of the Internal Revenue Code, um, as well as any other limitations that might be created. So, for example, if you are reimbursing um, mileage rates, there is a, uh, uh, a specific um, standard reimbursement rate, which is different from the business reimbursement rate that the IRS announces every year. There are limitations on lodging. So you can cover lodging if someone travels to a different state to undergo treatment for abortion or any other medical procedure, but there are limitations. For example, the limit is $50 a night. And in some cases, it may go up to 100 if you have two people sharing the room. You can't uh, reimburse meals unless they're provided at the hospital. So there are certain travel uh, limitations on the travel reimbursement that are pre-existing in the Internal Revenue Code that the plan has to address. But there are other considerations to keep in mind. Will your travel reimbursement policy be limited to travel for um, abortion services, or will you expand it to cover other treatments? So, for example, some plans will cover uh, travel and lodging if someone wants to get care at a specialized clinic, um, or if they want to get, uh, tr you also often see these with regard to transplant services, because people sometimes have to travel out of state for a transplant or for a clinical trial. Um, and it could be advantageous to make your travel reimbursement policy broader than just abortion services. There are other concerns that you might want to think about as you craft your travel reimbursement policy. Uh, for example, there are concerns about how it might work with your mental health parity uh, uh, analyses and uh, whether or not it will impact um, your mental health parity calculations. Um, so uh, there are a number of factors which need to be addressed. Is this one of the situations in which they should definitely, employers should definitely consider talking to not only their benefit uh, broker and consultant, but also potentially to an attorney with before they start uh, digging into this very deeply? What do you think? I think this that would be very wise, especially at this stage. There are a number of issues you need to consider about how you structure uh, coverage for abortion services, whether it's through a travel reimbursement policy, how you define um, what kind of services you'll pay for, what will happen if that definition um, doesn't parallel state law, um, and so forth. So there are a number of issues at play, and I think... Um, it would be advantageous for the employer to consider consulting legal counsel as well as other experts as to the best way in which to structure any amendments they make to plan terms or to review existing plan terms so that they understand 
what is currently covered and what isn't. Right. I know that the clients of mine that have asked about it, um, I basically said, well, let's let's talk about this in stages. Let's talk about it conceptually. And now when we start getting into a little bit more details. Let's analyze your plan. And then when we get into that, then it's, you know, my next step is I think we need to bring in an attorney. And, and uh, you know, that seems to be the way I'm going. And my clients seem to be uh, agreeing with me in that, uh, with that process. And, and I think that's something that definitely they should think about uh, if they're thinking about putting in these types of benefits or, or changing them. I do want to come back to something that you said. It is very common for people to travel with these types of provisions and plans uh, for, you know, circumstances like transplants. But you also mentioned other specialty care centers of excellence. Quite often I've seen plans put in language that if they want to be seen by the, you know, the best surgeons with the highest success rates and so forth, they can do that. Uh, they can go to certain centers of excellence, which may not be, you know, around the corner. They might have to travel uh, to Arizona or they might have to travel to New Mexico or wherever it is. Um, so those are some of the things that would be considered. If you're going to put in those types of provisions, you need to think about all of those circumstances and not just, as you said, not just abortion. You need to put in, you know, think about how this travel plan can help you in general uh, for the plan. I think it's the best way to, to, to really kind of conceptually think through these uh, decisions before you jump and start uh, adding amendments uh, right now. Because I, a couple a couple people that I know have been trying to do that, well, we should do this right now without thinking about it. And, and you really can't jump that quickly. You really need to work through it all, as, as you said. So I appreciate your making that comment. I, I absolutely agree with that. I think you need to look at the big picture and the centers of excellence and the transplants and just how broadly you want to make this provision apply or how narrowly. Um, it isn't a knee-jerk response, and it isn't a one-size-fits-all response. Right. Um, you know, one of the questions we sometimes get is, do you have just form language? It's not that easy. This is um, something that needs to be looked at in the overall context of what your plan covers or doesn't and how you want to move forward um, in the future. Right. Thank you. So what about ERISA plans? Well, you mentioned this before. What kind of flexibility do they have versus state-regulated, uh, fully insured plans related to abortion? Well, if you have a fully insured plan, whether or not the plan can cover abortion may very well be addressed by state law. In some cases, the state may mandate abortion coverage in fully insured plans. In other cases, it may allow fully insured plans to cover abortion. In the cases where it allows it, then it's a decision that the employer makes when they decide which plan they're going to purchase at the start of the year. If you have a fully insured plan that doesn't cover abortion, you could supplement the plan by creating a health reimbursement arrangement that would cover just abortion. Um, again, but there are a number of considerations that you need to think about how you structure that, making it a part of your ERISA plan, integrating it with your group health plan. So it's not an, uh, a knee-jerk decision. Um, it does require some thinking and some um, planning, but it is a possibility. If you have a self-funded plan, you are not concerned with the state insurance laws, so you have more flexibility in how you structure the benefits. Um, let's say you did want to offer, uh, start offering abortion coverage and you haven't in the past, you can make an amendment to your existing plan. You could set up a uh, related health reimbursement arrangement. There are several ways you can do it. Um, but again, you'd have to, if you have a separate HRA, you'd have to 
want to make that part of your ERISA plan, I would recommend. Um, you'd want to integrate it with your group medical and so forth. So to sum up, if you've got a fully insured health plan, to some degree, the decision might be made by the terms and conditions written into your state's insurance laws. If you have a self-funded plan, you generally have more flexibility and more discretion to design benefits um, uh, as you deem appropriate. Thank you. And what about extended pharmacy benefits for abortion? Can you talk briefly about the difference between surgical abortions and pharmaceutical abortions like the morning after pill and how that relates to things like the you just mentioned, um, fully insured versus self-funded, that sort of thing. How flexible or inflexible can those types of uh, you know expanded pharmacy benefits be in a plan? I think that the major issue with regard to pharmacy benefits might be similar to telemedicine benefits, and that is going to uh, turn on um, who is prescribing the medication and whether or not they can prescribe across state lines. I think that's where we're going to see the biggest questions. So does the Biden administration's recent guidance help at all? The Biden administration has issued a, a number of different pieces of guidance of late to explain how these new changes um, impact uh, health plans. They've done it in the HIPAA context. They've done it with regard to pharmaceuticals. And definitely um, it is helpful to have um, that guidance and to have the current administration's opinions on um, how existing laws interplay with um these new changes that we're seeing as a result of Dobbs. We still don't have all of the answers to the questions. So what they have been doing basically is um, educating us on what existing federal law says and how they believe it applies um, under the circumstances, which is very helpful. But there are we still have some unopened, very important questions, which I think will only ultimately be resolved in the courts. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right about that. So let's move on to another important Supreme Court case, Marietta versus DeVita and Medicare secondary payer rules. Can you give us a brief overview of this case? Yes. So under the Medicare secondary payer rules, there are limitations in the ways in which an employer can structure its group health plan. What they are trying to prevent is uh, shifting plan costs onto Medicare when they should instead be paid uh, by the group health plan. So this comes up when you have an employee, um, whether it is an employee over age 65 who is eligible for both Medicare and who is still actively at work and eligible for coverage under the employer's group health plan, or it comes up in cases where someone has end-stage renal disease and is covered by both Medicare and the employer's group health plan. And the Medicare secondary payer rules are designed to, um, as I indicated, to prevent plans from shifting costs under Medicare and many making Medicare the primary payer for services when, in fact, they feel that the employer's plan should be the primary payer for services and then Medicare will pay secondary. Well, basically, the decision was that the health plan's low reimbursement for dialysis services does not violate the Medicare secondary payer rules. I know this is confusing for some uh, if they weren't involved and didn't know the history of the of the cases. Uh, this when it was in the Supreme Court, of course, it was uh, there was a different 
Uh, there was a different ruling in the lower courts uh, a couple of years before. The ruling mentioned that because the plan provides the same dialysis benefits to every plan participant, the plan does not take into account whether the participants are entitled to or eligible for Medicare. Why is this important to employers? Under the Medicare secondary payer rules, one of the things that a plan cannot do when structuring and designing its benefits is take into account that someone is entitled to Medicare. So when structuring their benefits, they cannot do so in a way that would treat someone who is on Medicare differently from someone who is not on Medicare. Under the Marietta case, Marietta was a self-funded health plan, and DeVita had argued that Marietta's self-funded health plan set very low reimbursement rates for dialysis services. And DeVita argued that um, this was a violation of the Medicare secondary payer rules. And the Supreme Court determined that it wasn't because the Supreme Court argued that they weren't treating um, people on Medicare differently. They were treating people on dialysis differently. And so that was allowed. Now, the dissent in the Marietta case argued that 90-some percent of the people on uh, dialysis have end-stage renal disease. So by setting low reimbursement rates for dialysis, you were, in fact, impacting people with end-stage renal disease who are Medicare-eligible differently, but the majority opinion disagreed with that. It's a very esoteric (laughs) area of the law and a very esoteric argument. Here's the bottom line. As a result of the DeVita case, Self-funded health plans now have more flexibility in how they set rates for dialysis reimbursement. Right. Yes. So as you mentioned, very important case for self-funded plans. I happen to work with a lot of self-funded plans, as you know. Uh, In fact, the Self-Insurance Institute of America had provided testimony and arguments in this case, uh, as well as other industry experts and so forth. And this was one of three federal appeals cases by DeVita. SIA saw this case as a major victory in their efforts to protecting and promoting the business interests of companies that are involved in the self-insurance space. I tend to agree with them because I've seen um, some of the very high charges uh, in the past uh, for dialysis centers. Um, it confirmed the ability, as you mentioned, of health plans to be able to provide cost containment uh, provisions within their plan that are what they called common sense measures uh, for high cost services like dialysis with historically very high overcharging practices, frankly. Um, you and I have different opinions on this and that's fine. Um, it's, that's one of the things I like about our relationship is that we can have different opinions and, and still be friends <laughs> again, work well together. Um, but how, how do you feel about this? Do you think this was a major victory in the self-insured industry? Um, tell me a little bit about you know where you're coming from on this. It definitely gives more flexibility to um, employers with self-funded plans to set pricing uh, for dialysis services. Um, and it is, a you know, the cost of dialysis services has been a big concern to health plans for many years. And this does give them uh, more flexibility in how they set those reimbursement rates. I will say, though, that, uh, again, like our conversation about Dobbs, um, I would caution employers not to take a knee-jerk reaction to this and um, automatically just drop their rates very, very low. Yeah, I yeah. think um, you. this is a decision where you're going to want to um, 
analyze uh, the implications of all the decisions you make. Talk to your TPAs, talk to your actuaries, talk to your consultants, and make an informed decision as to what you think the appropriate pricing should be in light of this new decision. Yeah, and I think a lot of this came from the fact that there are so few dialysis uh, centers out there. That, I mean, the majority of them, I think it's 90% of them, are owned by two uh, major dialysis companies um, forming, not a monopoly, but very close to, um, and they could really kind of control their own pricing. And I think that was one of the things that the self-insurance industry um, was most concerned with. So it's always it's always emotional and it's always one of those uh, kind of controversial things, I guess, to a certain extent. But the reality is that self-funded plans do need to take a look at their, their costs and see if there are certain types of benefits, um, certain types of industries and certain types of providers that are that are um, overcharging or charging above the norm, uh, above the usual and customary rates, uh, and 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 determine common sense cost containment if they need to do that. And I think this is just one of the examples of those types of scenarios. Um, so with that, um, I'll move on to the next subject because we have a lot of things to talk about. As we all know, the huge Inflation Reduction Act was signed into law in August. What does this cover in brief related to drug pricing and healthcare costs, and how does this affect employers? The Inflation Reduction Act, which is called the IRA, um, has uh, will have a number of impacts on the healthcare industry, but with the exception of perhaps one provision, it doesn't have a direct impact on employer health plans, but I think it will have a long-term impact on the industry and health coverage generally. The one provision that it does directly impact employer health plans applies in the event that you offer your employees a high deductible health plan. As you probably know, if you offer your employees a high deductible health plan and they enroll in the high deductible health plan, they can contribute to a health savings account, an HSA. They cannot, however, contribute to a health savings account. They lose eligibility if they have any healthcare costs reimbursed below the high deductible limits. So um, if they have um, if they have coverage under a general purpose health FSA and they get costs reimbursed below the high deductible limit, they will lose their eligibility to contribute to the health uh, a health savings account. There's always been an exception under the high deductible health plan rules for preventive care, but the IRA, uh, the new IRA rules add another exception that is important to know about. And specifically, um, if the plan uh, reimburses insulin below the high deductible limit, this will not cause the employee to lose HSA eligibility. So I think that is an important plan term. Um, some other provisions in the IRA bill that you'll want to know about has to do with premium tax credits. So if um, an individual goes to a marketplace such as the federal marketplace or covered California and buys an individual plan, if their income falls below certain limits, they can qualify for a premium tax credit um, through which the government helps them pay their premium for that coverage. The number of individuals who qualified for the premium tax credit was increased during the pandemic and the IRA, those increases were set to expire and the IRA bill continues on those increases through 2025. So, so through 2025, more individuals will be eligible for a premium tax credit. 
I should let you know that there is a bill pending in California, actually two bills that would also create greater eligibility for premium tax credits from covered California, and that is SB 944 and AB 1878. So what else is in the IRA? It also creates the ability of Medicare for the first time to negotiate with um, uh, pharmaceutical manufacturers on prescription drug prices. They also have some limits on insulin so that for people on Medicare, cost sharing for insulin will be capped at $35 a month. There is also going to be a limit on Part D out-of-pocket prescription drug costs, which will eventually be capped at $2,000 starting in 2025. And I think those are the major provisions which generally affect the health industry. I should mention California has a bill pending in the legislature this year that would cap the costs of insulin costs in fully insured planned and HMO contracts at $35 um, for a month, and that is SB 473. So that is another bill to keep our eye out on if you've got a fully insured plan. Even though many of these provisions I've talked about in the IRA do not directly affect employer group health plans, they could have an impact, as I implied, on the market in general. So, for example, one of the concerns the industry has right now is will pharmaceutical companies increase their prices for um non-Medicare plans, in other words, private employer plans, because they, once they start negotiating with Medicare for Medi- to reduce uh, the cost of drugs for Medicare participants, will they need to make up the differential in other ways? Um, so that is something to keep our eye out on, um, what the overall impact will be on the uh, healthcare industry as a result of these new changes instituted by the IRA bill. Thank you very much. And I know we're going to be talking more about this on September 21st, uh, but I know we're running short on time. Uh, I'd like you to comment uh, briefly, if you could, on cafeteria plans and Section 127 student loan and student debt reimbursement programs, because I think a lot of employers wanting to hire young people fresh out of college are pretty excited about this. And of course, those young uh, students, those young graduates and so forth are are pretty excited about it, too. Can you just briefly uh, mention that for us? Certainly. And by the way, since you mentioned cafeteria plans, one of the other items I wanted to mention, which is a carryover from the pandemic legislation, is employers that offer health FSAs or health reimbursement arrangements can now reimburse um, over-the-counter drugs and medications, including menstrual products, through their health FSA or their health reimbursement arrangement. That is an optional provision, and it's not going away with the end of the pandemic. So um, if you haven't already instituted that change and you're interested in it, you can still go forward and add that change to your health FSA or your health reimbursement arrangement. But along those lines of providing additional benefits that might be attractive to your employees, I'm glad, Dorothy, that you mentioned the Section 127 plans and the student loan uh, reimbursement programs. I think this is potentially a great benefit for a lot of employers, particularly those employers who are looking to attract and retain uh, workers. We know that has been a challenge, and I think this one provision in the law could be quite attractive. 
how this works is that Section 127 of the Internal Revenue Code has, for many years, allowed employers to set up tuition reimbursement programs through which employers could reimburse employees' tuition costs up to a total of $5,250 per year, and that sum was not included in the employee's gross income. With uh, the CAA, what the government does was it expanded Section 127 to say that in addition to reimbursing tuition costs, another option employers have is to reimburse student loan debt. So many of your new employees or not so new employees might have a lot of carryover student loan debt from their college days, and they're looking to pay that down. Employers can now set up a Section 127 plan or amend their existing plan and reimburse up to $5,250 toward uh, student loan debt repayments, and that amount will not be included in the employee's gross income for tax purposes. Now, this benefit only runs through 2025, and then it is set to expire. Hopefully, they will extend it after that, Um, but that is the current deadline. If you do want to set up one of these plans, you do have to jump through some hoops. You need a written plan document, and you need to follow some rules, but um, I think overall, it is potentially very beneficial to your employees. I should also note that that $5,250 annual limit is for both tuition and student loan debt. You don't get that limit for uh, both of them. So it's just a a total of $5,250 for either student loan or tuition. Um, And finally, I did want to let you know that um, there was a bill pending in the California legislature this year that would have extended that same benefit on the state side. Um, and uh, that was AB 1729, and unfortunately, that bill died. I don't know why, but um, it was being uh, supported by Cal Sherm and Pyra, but it didn't make it through, Um, and uh, so that means that the tax benefits only at the federal side, but still, that's a good thing for a lot of employers and their employees. Yes, for sure. Well, I know we only have a couple of minutes here, but one of the most important, you mentioned some of them, obviously, related to the to the topics we were already talking about. What are the most important California state updates that our listeners should be aware of? Uh, Well, along the lines of what we've been talking about today, there's a bill pending which would require employers to provide bereavement leave to their employees. There is a bill pending that will increase the amount that employees will be paid under paid family leave benefits. There are quite a few mandated benefit bills working their way through the legislature, such as the insulin bill that are worth uh, keeping an eye out on. Um, as well as the increases in the premium tax credits. And there are some important bills um, in the labor uh, arena. For example, there's a bill that require you to get out a final paycheck faster than you have had to in the past. Um, And there's some pay data reporting bills. So there's actually a lot going on in the state legislature this year. Things were a little slower during the pandemic, but they're picking up again. Um, Just as a reminder, the state legislature has to act on all bills currently pending uh, by August 31. And at midnight on August 31, then they go on recess. The governor then has until September 30th to sign or veto all bills presented to him by the legislature. And a final reminder about legislative calendaring is all bills passed by the California legislature and signed by the governor 
go into effect on January 1 of the following year, unless by their terms they have an earlier or a later effective date. So usually we have a whole slew of bills that go into effect January 1. Yes, yes. Very important to remember that. And it's pretty good timing for us having our September 21st lunch and learn, of course, because I'm assuming that the majority of those bills that are going to be signed are going to be signed by that date, although there will be potentially some stragglers. Well, yes, actually, I'll add to that. Um, the Governor uh, Governor Newsom's pretty good about signing bills um, uh, throughout the entire month of September. We've had governors in the past sort of waited Wait till the last minute, yeah. <laughs> and signed a whole slew of bills right at the last minute. Actually, Governor Newsom signs them throughout the throughout the course of the month. So we will start it, that information will start trickling out and we will still start getting an idea of what will be uh, what new laws we will be subject to um, as the month progresses. Yeah. Um, and at least we will also know by that date definitely what the legislature has passed. Right. Um, and what the governor has to consider. Right. Well, that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much. I think we could have easily extended this to a four-part series because there's so much to cover. Uh, But that's why we think that you should definitely register to attend our September 21st Lunch and Learn. Again, go to advancedbenefitconsulting.com to register, and you can use the discount codes that are provided in the show notes for discounts for either in-person or Zoom webinar live stream attendance. So once again, thank you so much, Marilyn, for spending so much time with us in both episode one and two to begin our season four. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Always enjoy this process. If anybody wants to reach out to you once again, if they have questions and so forth, how can they do that? Well, well, my phone number is 310-989-0993. And my email address is Marilyn at MonahanLawOffice.com. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks again, Marilyn. And for everybody else out there, please stay safe, stay healthy. And if you want to learn more about these topics again, Go ahead and register for our Lunch and Learn on September 21st at advancedbenefitconsulting.com. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for compliance tips, cost containment ideas, new trends, and decision-making tools. This podcast is produced by Advanced Benefit Consulting, Anaheim, California. All views expressed are those of the host or interviewees and not necessarily those of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Information contained herein should not be construed as legal advice. We always recommend that you consult with your legal counsel as situations do vary. Ms. Koshu can be reached at 714-693-9754, extension 3. Toll free at 866-658-3835. Or visit our website at advancedbenefitconsulting.com.